Well, last week we talked about we reached a turning point in the book of Mark, that we've reached this point, and from this point forward, um, everything that Jesus is doing is leading him both directionally and intentionally in what he's doing in the passages to Jerusalem. And we saw the reason last week for why he is doing that, that he is going to be rejected, to suffer, and to be killed. And so Jesus is marching towards that. And so today we're going to continue to see that journey, him working towards that. Because he's, last week we saw he called his followers to do the exact same thing, to follow him, to come and to die, and to give up of themselves to follow him. And so to sacrifice and to understand what it means last week is a, I think, a difficult, challenging thing for us to do. But one of the, I think, the beauties of Scripture is almost every time it gives us something really hard and really challenging, it gives us something full of hope and joy and celebration after that. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see some, some glory and some hope and see more of Jesus' true nature and how that helps us live out the Christian life. And so that's where we're, we're going to look at today. We're going to start with um, chapter... 9 verse 1, um, and that's page 896. If you're using the Pew Bible that's in here, you can find it in the Version Bible app. If you look us up in the events section, you can find us and it'll be there for you. But it's, we'll start in chapter 9 verse 1, and this is actually the end of our passage last week, but I'm going to pick it up um, again and start with it this week because it talks about, right, some of you won't see death until the kingdom of God comes in power. Um, And I think that's going to help us understand what we're seeing today. It tells us that when the kingdom of God shows up, whatever that looks like, it will be powerful. It will be obvious. You won't mistake it for somebody else, for something else. It will be clear because the kingdom of God comes in power. It doesn't limp in. It doesn't sneak in. It doesn't just show up kind of under the radar. When God shows up and does something, it's obvious that that's what he is doing. So especially in a time where there's a shift or a change in redemptive history, which is what we're seeing right now um, with Jesus, he's changing everything that was believed about how to be close to God and in a right relationship with him up to this point. It's all about to change. So let's look at what's going to change and what we see God doing to show that the kingdom of God is here. So let's look at um, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And it says this, And then he said, to, to, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." Because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. And a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. And then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. 
Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. And so we hear the story, and so we've been talking about in Mark, especially recently, this concept of Jesus confirming his identity. And the question he keeps asking over and over, can you see? Can you hear? Do you understand? So this is actually going to be our outline for this morning is, do we see Jesus? Do we hear Jesus? Do we understand Jesus? Because I think it fits very well with what we see in this passage. And so first, we see Jesus, right? After six days, Jesus, Peter, James, and John go up on uh, the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured or transformed in front of them. He becomes white and dazzling like No amount of bleach, no amount of detergent, no amount of anything can get you as white as this. And so maybe we should make like a Jesus laundry detergent or something that bleaches all your clothes and gets them really clean. Maybe we should go for that. But that's what's happening. And so what's happening here is they're getting a glimpse of Jesus' true nature. So to be transfigured or to be transformed is not just changing in outward appearance. They weren't just saying that Jesus looked different. Right? It wasn't like a wardrobe change and then a spotlight. Right? It wasn't just his outward appearance, but they were seeing some of his inward nature coming through because he seems to be glowing. And so, yes, it does change, include a change in what he looked like, but that appearance changes to reveal his true nature. So for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity is lifted and they can see Jesus' true nature. His true essence is visible to the disciples. Now, in the Old Testament, the the glory and the presence of God is always accompanied by the same symbol of something shining or being bright or being brilliant. And so Jesus is transformed here to reveal the very thing he's trying to get the disciples to understand, that he is the Son of God who has been sent. And so his true nature is God, and it's coming through. He is God in the flesh. And so for a moment, the fullness of his deity shines through, and they're able to see it. And so to see this concept and to understand this passage more clearly, um, I think it will be helpful um, to see some of the connections between what's happening here um, with Jesus on this mountain and with Moses. Um, Obviously, there's a connection because he shows up um, later in the passage, but there's more than that here, and I think it'll help us to see how God is bringing all of these things together to help us understand And so in Exodus 24, 15 and 16, it says they were on the mountain six days in a cloud and God spoke to them on the seventh day. Sounds very familiar because after six days, they went up on the mountain with the disciples. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. So he took three people, Moses did, up with him on the mountain to meet with God. Then verse 16 says, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called Moses from the cloud, and the appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintops. So we see on the mountaintop. So again, we see this bright, we see fire, we see something manifesting God's presence up on a mountain. So very similar. But what happened with Moses is after he would meet with God on the mountain or some later on is after he would meet with God, what would happen is some of that glory would sort of rub off on him and his face would glow. 
And so when he went out to talk to the people, they were like, look, 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 we're not going to talk to you while your face is glowing, um, which I think we might also say that now too. So he would put on a veil um, to cover that up so they couldn't see the glowing as much. But what was happening with Moses is he was reflecting the glory of God. When he spent time with God in his presence, God's glory was reflected in Moses. Think of it like the the way that the moon reflects the light from the sun, right? The moon doesn't have any light in itself. It is only lit up. We can only see it because it reflects what the light that comes from the sun. So Moses is only reflecting the light, the glory that came from God. But what's different here is Jesus is not reflecting God's glory. Right? He is the source of God's glory, and so the light, God's essence, his nature is flowing out of Jesus. It is emanating from him. He is the source, and so he's not a reflection of God. He is truly God, and so that's what we see coming out. We see his true nature coming out in that. So he re- produces the unsurpassable glory of God. He is the glory of God in human form. And so that's what happens when he's glowing like that and they see him. And so we see Jesus transformed, and then we see Moses and Elijah are also there. So why these two? Um, If you've been following along in the book of Mark, you've heard Moses, you've heard Elijah a couple of times already when people kind of ask who Jesus is. Um, But there's another reason why these two. Um, Both of these guys, um, Elijah and Moses, have had an experience with God on a mountaintop. And so Elijah, when he's in a point where he's kind of discouraged in his ministry, he feels like he's the last prophet left. Um, God says, look, I'm going to take care of you. Go up in the mountain and stay right here, and then I'll talk to you. And he goes up there, and there's a great wind, but God says God's not in the wind. Then there's an earthquake, and it says he's not in the earthquake. And then there's a whisper, and he hears God in the whisper. So Elijah has this mountaintop experience um, in 1 Kings 19, I think it's 1 Kings. Yes, in 1 Kings 19, um, where he is on the mountain and experiences God's glory. And then there's Moses. He's some, another, another time, he is also a little bit discouraged in his ministry. And he asks, God, can I see your glory so that I know that you're with us? And so God says, well, you can't see my face, but what I'll do is I'll put you in the crack and then I'll cover you up and I'll go by you and you can see my back. And so Moses does that so that he can, God can, he can see God's glory. So another reason that these two men are chosen is because they experience this thing with God on the mountain. And so we, that's one of the reasons. The other is they're precursors to the Messiah, which we've seen kind of throughout the book. So they're great figures in the faith. And that's what Peter sees on the mountain. He sees Jesus, he sees Moses, he sees Elijah. But the way that he responds to that shows that he's still kind of missing who Jesus really is. He can't quite see it. And one of the ways that he does that is he includes Jesus along with Elijah and Moses, right? And his response out of fear, which I think if any of us were there, we would probably be a little bit scared as well, right? Two guys show up, Jesus starts glowing. Um, We're probably going to be freaking out a little bit. So Peter doesn't quite know what to say, but he begins with rabbi right? Which means teacher, which means he's not quite seeing exactly what Jesus has come to do, because Jesus didn't just come to be a teacher. He came to be much more than that. And he says, let's build three shelters, right? Saying, hey, this is a good thing. 
It's good that you guys are here, that Moses is here, that Elijah is here, that's you here. Let's build three shelters and let's just hang out here a while. Let's just stay up here. Let's just worship. Let's, this is a good thing that you're all here. And so that's what they're doing. But he, in that thing that he's doing, he one tent for each punt, he lumps in Jesus along with Moses and Elijah, basically saying they're all kind of viewed the same. And so he calls Jesus rabbi in that. And so he isn't just a teacher. He isn't just teaching new information or encouraging to live out, live out the laws of Moses or to heed the message of the prophets. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, to bring a new way to be made right with God. And so what we see here is not another teacher, not just another prophet. We can see Jesus' true nature, the full glory of God. He is more than a teacher. He is more than a prophet, which is made very clear in what we see next. And so next we're going to see how to hear Jesus. And we see this in verse 7. And it says, A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So we've heard, right, what what people say Jesus is. We've heard what the disciples would say Jesus is. And now we're hearing what God would say Jesus is. And again, we have this Moses connection in the passage. So listen to this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is God speaking to Moses. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Sound familiar? This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. And then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything that I command him. So we see almost these same words repeated from Deuteronomy when he talks to Moses. I'm going to send another prophet, and he will speak my words, and you should listen to him. Right? And these words, I think, probably echo what we saw at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus goes to John the Baptist and he baptizes Jesus, and when he comes out out of the water, we hear again the same voice, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? It's an echo of the baptism, and Jesus' baptism was also to confirm his identity, that he was different than everybody else who was getting baptized, especially being baptized by John, who was the precursor, he was the essentially new Elijah who prepared for the Messiah to come. And so what we have here is a convergence of several different things all to prove the same point. We have the connection to God sending a prophet who would be the greater Moses. We have the connection to Jesus' baptism and God's approval. We have a connection to Elijah and Moses who are the precursors to the Messiah. So they all come together in one verse. In eight words, God has connected Jesus to all of the Old Testament and the coming of the Messiah. In eight words, he connects all of those dots and brings them together in Christ to confirm that Jesus is the one who was sent by him to rescue and to redeem them. 
that the kingdom of God is here. And the way that we know it's here is because God has unveiled the king. Jesus has arrived, Jesus has shown up, and he is the king who would rule, who would reign, who would come to make everything right. But he doesn't just say, he's my son, he's the Messiah, and he confirms his identity. He also gives us an instruction. Right? He tells us to listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And yes, we should listen to Jesus because God commands us. The creator of the universe is telling us that we should listen. Right? It's like the manufacturer of a product giving you a video to say, hey, this is how you should use this. This is what you should do with it. Right? God is saying, this is the manual for how to live, for how to be saved, for how to be right with God. You should listen to him. You should pay attention to him. You should watch what he's doing. You should do that. He's going to give you all that you need to know what, how to live and what to do. And so if you're here this morning in the room or you're watching at home, I don't think you're shocked that I'm telling us, right, you should listen to Jesus. Um, even if you're watching or you're here and you're not yet a believer in Christ, I think that was something you would expect to hear when you came to a church. That seems kind of like basic Christianity, and I agree. And you might say, sure, I listen to Jesus. But the question I want us to think about this morning is this. How much, how much weight do we give to the words of Jesus? And here's what that means. Let's say you have a decision to make. Maybe it's a new job or a life change or you're making a big decision or we're trying to figure something out or you're evaluating something. Um, how do you make that decision? Well, you probably think about it and you may weigh the pros and cons. Hey, these are the good things. These are the bad things. Do the pros outweigh the cons? Maybe you Google it and you do some research and you figure out kind of what the internet might say. And maybe you might even ask a friend or someone who has gone through it already to get advice. But do we turn to the words of Jesus? Do we examine Scripture to look for principles, to look for guiding um, things that will help us to make that decision, to help us understand it? Do we spend time in prayer asking Him to show up, asking Him to speak to us, and listening, not just asking, but actually listening for Him? And praying not just one time, but again and again and again and again. And do we wait for Jesus to answer? Do we wait for him? And does the wisdom of Scripture, does the guidance of the Holy Spirit, does that have the same weight as all the other advice that we're getting? Does it sit on the same level as everything else? Well, I heard from this my friend, and I did some research, and I made the pros and cons, and then here's Jesus and the Bible's help, and they're all kind of level in our lives. And when I look at my life, I think that's probably about how it works. I put all of those things together in one lump, and I give them all equal weight. But God is saying, no, you need to listen to Jesus. Give him more weight than all of the other things. He knows what's best for you. He loves you. He cares for you. Even if it takes longer, we should wait. We should be patient. We should listen to him. Because if we truly listen to Jesus, his words, his guidance through the Bible and the Holy Spirit should have more weight than anything else. And that's the mistake that Peter was making 
right? Jesus belongs in the same category as Moses and Elijah. Let's put all three of them together in these shelters and let's worship them. But no, Jesus is greater. He is over and above them. And so it would be a mistake for us to lump in the wisdom of the world and friendly advice with Jesus and his words. He is greater. He is over and above anything in this world. And we are called to listen, to let his words have weight in our lives, even if it means slowing down and waiting for him to speak. And it becomes easy to listen. It becomes easy to give his words weight in our lives when we understand Jesus, which is what we see next. In verse 8, we see that Jesus is greater. That's the point I think they want us to see here, is that suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anything, anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah disappear, and only Jesus remains. Right? This is significant in light of what Peter is saying because this makes it clear. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Their time has come and gone. They have disappeared. They are no longer here. But Jesus continues. He continues to minister. He continues to live. He remains. And it was God's design to distinguish Jesus from all the rest and we see here that he was different. He is God's son appointed to be the supreme teacher of his church. Therefore, we should listen to him. Right? The ministry of, the, of others is ending, but the ministry of Jesus is just beginning. He continues. He is greater. Right? Teachers, prophets, pastors, they come and go. Right? You've had lots of pastors in the history of this church. Um, at some point, I don't know when that is, hopefully a long, 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 long time from now, um, I won't be here anymore either, and you won't be here either. But Jesus will still be here speaking to us and teaching us. Right? And that also sets this Christianity apart from all of the other religions. All the founders of all the other religions are gone. They are dead. You can go visit their graves. You can go find them and see them, but not Christianity. Yes, Jesus died, but he didn't stay there. He came back to life. He is risen. He is alive. His ministry continues when all the others pass away, when all the others fade away, when no one else can make it. He continues. He is the only one who is still living and still active. And that's why we should listen to him. But also because he is the suffering servant who will rise from the dead. And we see this in kind of nine, in verse 9 and following. It says, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell them that no one, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept this word to themselves, questioning, What does rising from the dead mean? So, you get the same thing, right? Don't tell anybody to rise from the dead, but the disciples are still confused. They don't quite understand what it means to rise from the dead. One of the reasons is because the, the Messiah coming back to life was so far out of their um, concept and other, their belief that it just wasn't even a possibility. They didn't even see that as a possibility. But for the first time, 
When Jesus says, don't tell anyone, he gives them a time limit. Did you notice that? He says, don't tell anyone until the resurrection, until I come back to life. Then you can tell everybody. So this is why I think Jesus has been hesitant to reveal that he is the true Messiah. He's worried that people will misunderstand him and try to force him to take a different path. But as we turn the corner in the book of Mark and we begin to see this more and more clearly as Jesus begins to be more and more open about how he's going to accomplish what God has for him, that he needs to make it very clear what people need to understand about him and to believe about him to have salvation and to be his disciples. And there is no way to understand who Jesus is until we have seen him suffer, die, and rise again. The resurrection will give everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said new meaning. Right? We talk about this concept often, right? If Jesus says, hey, I'm the Son of God and I'm going to rise from the dead, but he doesn't rise from the dead, then he's just a crazy person like all the other people that said they were going to come back to life. Right? But when he does actually come back to life, it confirms and it proves that he is exactly who he said he was. And so the resurrection sheds light and meaning and purpose on everything else that we see in Jesus. And then they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they still aren't quite understanding, but the fact that they're asking about Elijah means they're starting to get on the right track because Elijah was supposed to show up when the end was coming, when the Messiah was about to arrive. And so Jesus again clarifies what's happening with Elijah and how that relates to him and them as well. And so basically what Jesus says is his answer is this. Elijah came and he suffered. And the people did whatever they wanted with him. This applies to both Elijah the prophet and to John the Baptist, who we saw as the new Elijah, who was the precursor to Jesus. So now the story that felt like it just kind of got thrown in about John the Baptist being killed begins to come into focus. Because Jesus is making this train, right? Elijah suffered. John the Baptist suffered. Now the Son of Man will come. And again, he says, he says he must suffer, right? He must suffer. He will be treated exactly the same way as Elijah and John the Baptist before him. He is the suffering servant that's identified in Isaiah 53 who will suffer for the good of all mankind. He will take our iniquity, our sin on himself so that we can be restored. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. It's this concept of Jesus as the one who has come, the one who must suffer to prove that he is greater. He is above all the others. And he didn't just do that for his own glory, but he also did that for our good. Which I think kind of helps us to see the purpose of what is happening in this passage is that Jesus must suffer so that we can be transformed. He must suffer so that we can be transformed. There's a, a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm, I'm not going to read all of it, but if you look at it later, you will see uh, lots of connections in this verse. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
talks about kind of this concept that our hearts are hardened, that we can't see clearly. But it says in verse 14, the same veil remains, it is not lifted because it is only set aside in Christ. That this darkness, this inability for us to see clearly who Jesus is will be lifted. And it's only lifted through faith in Christ. When we're given the gift of faith and our eyes are opened and we understand and we sacrifice of ourselves and we give of ourselves and we surrender to Jesus, then the veil is lifted and we can see clearly. We can see clearly our true nature. Right? Our true nature. It says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So when we turn to him, we can see clearly. And then verse 18, I think, is the verse, kind of the center of this passage. It says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So when it says we are being transformed into the same thing, that's the same word for Jesus being transfigured on the mountain where we see Jesus' true nature. We see his true nature. We see that he was the perfect, righteous man who came to earth to live among us and to die on the cross as a sacrificial lamb. And he paid for my sins. And when we believe that, the veil is lifted. We can see his glory clearly. His true nature is visible to us and he becomes more than a teacher to us. He becomes more than a prophet. He becomes our savior and our redeemer. And then all of us with unveiled faces can see God's glory clearly. Right? But it also says we see as in a mirror. Meaning when we look at ourselves, we can see the reflection of God's glory on us. We see our true nature. Just like Moses when he met with God and he was a reflection of God's glory. When people look at us, when we're spending time with God, when we're, being, when we're surrendering to Jesus and following him, we reflect God's glory to others. Right? It says we will be transformed into the same image from glory to glory, meaning we'll continue to be more and more and more like Christ. The more we seek him, the more we follow him, the more we listen to him, the more we become like him, and the more of his glory we reflect to the world around us. And so not only does it change us, but it can also change others when they see his glory and his grace and his mercy and his compassion and his power through us. Right? And that's why Jesus sacrifices not just to be a big deal, but for our good and our glory so that we could reflect him, so that we could be transformed. And so that's what we see this morning, that Jesus was transformed, he was transfigured so that we could see him as he truly was, as the Savior and Redeemer who would die for the sins of all mankind. And when he did that, we can be changed as we trust in him and listen to him and his words. We guys pray with me this morning. God, we come before you. 
And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your power. God, we thank you that you do give us examples. You give us pictures. You give us um, things that we can see that our minds can grab hold of, of what it would mean to to love you and to listen to you and to follow you. And we can see the true nature of Jesus that you leave no doubt as to who he really is, that he is the son of God who has come to serve and to save us and to redeem us. That us as sinners, that what we earn for our sin is death. And that we give our lives to you, that when we do that, when we surrender, when we confess, when we repent, when we turn to you, that your righteousness becomes ours because you took our place. Because you are holy, you are worthy, you are the sacrificial lamb who loves us and laid down his life for us. And so this morning, help us to continue to remember you, to think about you, to let your words, to let your actions have weight in our lives over and above our own thoughts or the wisdom of the world, but that you would have weight and that we would honor you and love you and listen to you in those moments. Because as we saw this morning, God has unveiled Jesus as the king who will rule and will reign forever. So help us to listen and to worship the King. It's in your name I pray. Amen.